awaken yourself and your presence in our hearts, God, that we would leave knowing that we encountered you and leave changed and ready to fulfill the mission that you've given us as your children. God, I ask that you would be with Matt as he um, teaches the scriptures to us and um, brings the words that you want to say to us um, into life, God, that um, that you would just be with all of us tonight. Um, continue to be with us as you are already here and um, allow us to have a new appreciation of who you are and how deeply you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Man and groups to come and help us. Sorry, I just got way louder. And so um, it was just an opportunity for us to say, hey, it's, it's Labor Day. It's time for us just to rest in that. Uh, there's some resources on our blog, on our website. If you didn't check those out, I encourage you to check those out. And just this idea of resting and Sabbathing. I'm always wanting us to grow in these, uh, the ways of Jesus and the practices of Jesus. And so those are some resources. That's why I put them up there uh, for us. If you are new with us or if you're a returning college student, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor of Sojourn, and uh, we look forward to worshiping with you this evening. If you're, um, this week, we're actually starting a brand new series, as you see, for the city. Um, this, this particular sermon title start out is going to be called A Burden for the City. Uh, well, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah all the way up until December, and so we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Nehemiah. If you're not familiar with this book, it is an amazing book. It's one that I'm excited to study as a church family. I've never had the opportunity to actually teach or preach through the book of Nehemiah, so I'm really excited about that myself and excited to have you journey through that with us. Um, and as we work through this series, I want to start out and just kind of frame it this way. The people of God exist for the good of the city where they live. And I want you to let that sink in. And week in and week out, which is kind of why we have this picture up here, beautiful uh, hand-drawn picture, by the way, is, is just think about the city where God has called us. We're all here for different reasons. You might be a college student. Uh, you may have moved here for a job. You may be a native to here. If you are, let's talk afterwards because you're rare. But you're here for whatever reason and God has placed you here. And that we are here for the good of the city where we live. Now, the book of Nehemiah itself is written more like a journal or a blog post um, some would say by Nehemiah, some scholars say it's partially by Nehemiah and others, but either way, it's kind of written like an open blog post, which is a great way to remember things. Like imagine you have a journal, you go back, maybe you read it, or a diary. I remember my sisters, I've, I've got two older sisters, they had a diary when I was a little kid, so I go back and I try to find their diary and see what boys they like. So imagine those things, it's great, you can go back and look at those things, but how many of us look back on things that we wrote down or said previously and we regret it? That we really wish, man, I hadn't said that, I mean, I'm glad that my diary is under a lock and key that no one ever found it. And so uh, imagine that we're getting a chance to go back and look at the life of Nehemiah. And so we're going to see some really good things, but towards the end of the book, we're going to see some maybe shocking things as well. And so this is a really fun and exciting book. Nehemiah is an astounding leader. In the words of Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, he is a level five leader. Nehemiah shows us what it looks like for a dude with a job. So he's not a paid professional uh, Christian. He's, he's got a regular job, regular um, profession. And he lives with a high view of God, he lives with a high view of scripture, and he lives with a love for the people of God and a passion for the glory of God in the real world. And so you might be sitting there right now and you think, 
man, that, that sounds a lot like me. I've got a profession, I've got a job. Regardless if it's working at Starbucks or if you're a teacher or even if you're a college student, like that is kind of your profession right now in life. And so what does it look like to live in that job but also have a high view of God at that place, a high view of Scripture, and to live for the glory of God? What we're going to see is we're going to see real-life struggle with sin. How many of us can attest to that? There's, like, life is hard, and there's sin struggles daily. We're going to see opposition. We're going to see critics. We're going to see some relational conflict. Have we ever deal with relational conflict? We're going to see a touchy boss and much more. This book that we're about to journey through, it's not a fairy tale. And sometimes it's going to sound like a fairy tale to us, but it's a real-life story. Some would even refer to Nehemiah as the Old Testament counterpart to the Apostle Paul for the New Testament. So if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, who's a huge influential character in the New Testament who wrote much of the New Testament, some would say this is the Old Testament counterpart to that is Nehemiah. Nehemiah's name means the Lord comforts. And we're going to see the Lord use this servant to bring comfort and hope to discouraged exiles. In mercy, God is going to renew his people in the land in order to carry out what he promised to Abraham. And God raised up Ezra, the priest and teacher, and Nehemiah, who worked for the government, to lead his people to this physical and spiritual renewal. So in ancient times, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were joined as one. Um, if you guys are probably familiar with the Bible Project, it's based here in our city. We were going to show their video, but some techno uh, technology issues didn't allow for that. But check out their video. You're going to see where it kind of describes, Tim Mackey describes how they're, they're really one book join. And so in our modern English, we've separated them out. And so we are jumping in just looking at Nehemiah for this study. But essentially, the books follow the same pattern of restoration. So in Ezra 1 through 6, we see the restoration of the temple. In Ezra 7 through 10, we see the restoration of covenant life led by the teacher Ezra. And then in Nehemiah 1 through 6, we see the restoration of the walls. And then Nehemiah 7 through 13, we see the restoration of covenant life led by Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the point is, if God can do something great in the city of Jerusalem, he can also do something great in the city of Portland. And so I want us to think about that and look towards that and think, why, God, why do you have us here? What is it that you want us to do? We are in a city that many in our country have written off. We are constantly in the news. Uh, we're constantly on Fox and CNN, and some paint us in a really good light, and some paint us in a really bad light. But some people have just written us off and just said, there's no hope for that city. But I believe otherwise, and I believe God believes otherwise. And so if he can do something great in the city of Jerusalem, he can do something great in the city of Portland. In this book, we're going to see God uses a messed up individual, a messed up individual just like you and just like me in Nehemiah to do amazing work. So you may be sitting there thinking, well, we're staying the great, this life of this great leader. You've already told us that. Like, God can't use me in that way. People don't know what I've done. But Nehemiah is messed up just like you and I are messed up. And today, what keeps most of us from doing amazing work like Nehemiah is we're afraid. We live in a day now that we're so used to reading overnight success stories that we're ridden with anxiety and fear, which causes many of us to do nothing instead of something. Think about how often you're scrolling through social media, or I like to, to read CNN online. You're looking at those things, and you're just like, man, that was just like an overnight success story. Like, that's just not my story. I'm, I'm out there working and grinding and trying to get ahead in life, and just, I keep two steps forward, one step back, and, and you know, trying all these things. And we're just so used to these overnight success stories because we have access to all of these things. And so for many of us, it causes an anxiety to creep up in, within us. Or maybe even in your field of study, you, you don't want to put things out there publicly for fear of, of ridicule. But I think we're going to see with Nehemiah, he kind of postures himself as just starting something. He just does something. I face this reality when we, we wrestle through this call to plant a church here in the city of Portland. 
my family, for those of you that are, are part of us, you know this, we planted multiple churches in South Asia. And we kind of returned from our time overseas really on a high. We were kind of riding this wave of like, wow, like the life was hard, but we really got to see some success. We got to see some results. And then I, I watched those of friends of mine, some peers who go on to plant churches in the U.S., and it seemed like they would just pop. They would, they would go, they'd open their doors, and there'd be hundreds of people there. And then I'm facing this reality of, of, of this instant success, so to speak, and then looking at moving to the city of Portland to do the same thing and realizing that is not going to be the story here. Now, it can be. God can do that. And believe me, I prayed and asked God, uh, like, can you just flood uh, the stamp building one Sunday night so that we have to go find another location? And for whatever reason, God has chosen not to do that so far. But as I wrestled through that, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that God had called me here, that God had called my family here. And those of us that are on our core team, that God has called you here to join us and join him as he's uniting all things back to himself and as he is building his church here in the city of Portland. And you know what's, what's uh, uh, the anxiety and the fear that I still deal with? Is I have no guarantee of success. I, have, I talked to another church player this week, and he said, man, we are, we're on a, a mission of failure. Like, that's what we've kind of set ourselves up for. And I've got to the place of a freedom and re resting in Jesus Maybe over on our rest Sunday, I just said, God, I'm joining in whatever you've called me to do and whatever you want that story to look like. And Nehemiah was the same way. He said, I've got to do something. He, had, he didn't know what it was going to look like, but we're going to see that unpack and unfold over the coming weeks. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Nehemiah, there's a large part of it's about the rebuilding of a wall in Jerusalem. So for the record, this sermon and this series has nothing to do with the political discussion of a wall being built in our own country. Um, there's many differences, and I want to point out a few of those. This building project was a rebuilding effort. There were struggling exiles who were seeking to rebuild what was lost. It's a broken down wall in the holy city of Jerusalem. This place was linked with the name of God. And we're going to see a lot of fulfillment and point to things in scripture from the Old Testament into the New Testament from this book. And then finally, we must read this story with the broad sweep of redemptive history. Anytime you read the Bible, regardless if it's New Testament or Old Testament, you always want to look at a lens with redemptive history. Every single story, every single book points to Jesus, even if it doesn't mention the name of Jesus. And so sometimes we struggle kind of seeing that, but hopefully I'll be able to help bridge that for us. Now, Nehemiah, it, it doesn't show it if you've got your Bible open to it yet. It doesn't show it as the very last book of the Old Testament, but chronologically, Nehemiah is the last uh, book in the Old Testament. And so those of you who uh, have a church background, you're familiar with the Bible, what happens at the end of the Old Testament is the curtain drops, and all of a sudden we're, we're waiting for a Messiah. And through a rebuilt Jerusalem, Jesus could grow up now Jewish. He could be the true Israel. He could be the true temple and the final sacrifice, the fulfillment of the law that Ezra would teach. God is protecting and preserving his people for the good of the whole world, that all the families of the earth might be blessed. And through this people... We're promised that the Messiah, the one that we look forward to, the Messiah is coming. Throughout this study, I pray a few things. I pray that we all will get an elevated vision of the greatness of God. And I pray that you will see a greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, who is a better leader and an intercessor than Nehemiah, and a better priest and teacher than Ezra, and a better savior than both of them. Now, prior to jumping into chapter 1, we must set the stage with a little history. So if you enjoy history, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spit out a bunch of facts. I'll try not to say them too fast, and you may geek out on that stuff, and you may love it. We may even have a history major in here. But if you're like a lot of people, you might think, oh, no, this is going to be really boring, and this may be really long. But just hang with me. It sets the proper stage for us before we jump into Nehemiah. And so the, the backstory that will help us appreciate the drama unfolds. So about 1,000 years after God called Abraham, around 1050 to 931 B.C., 
Israel becomes a mighty nation under Saul, David, and Solomon. These were what some would have considered the golden years. But Solomon began to make disastrous compromises. He started disobeying God's word. He started committing idolatry. And because of sin and idolatry, the kingdom is eventually divided in 931, and we see Israel and Judah, the two sides. And then in 1722, we read the fall of Israel as the Assyrians conquered it, and Judah held on until 586 when Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, conquers it. They destroy the walls, the temple, and treasures, and then Jerusalem was leveled. So we've got this influential city, and everything's destroyed. It's, 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 it's leveled out. 2 Chronicles 36, 19-21 tells us this. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So then some 800 miles away, God's people are carried away under a foreign master, just like they were previously in Egypt. And by the rivers of Babylon, it says, we sat down and wept. That's from Psalm 137. And so we see sin and idolatry, it never satisfies. It instead brings destruction, it brings alienation, and it brings pain. Maybe some of you have experienced the effects of sin in your own life. Israel didn't follow wholly after God, and they suffered brutal consequences. But notice that the Chronicle says that this would happen for 70 years. We saw that in that last, that last passage. And until the establishment of a new superpower, and this new superpower being Persia. And Jer's, Jeremiah's word would be fulfilled. But what was that word? In Jeremiah 25, 11 through 14, it tells us this. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the, that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So in 539, Babylon falls to the Persians, and they come under the power of Cyrus the Great. Through a pagan king, God would make a way for his people to return to the land. I've always found that interesting, how God will use pagans, as the scripture says, to, for his own good, for his own glory. The Persians believed the best policy for government involved allowing people to worship their own way. They believed people would actually respond with greater loyalty to the Persians because of this action. So if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open them now. And before we get into the book of Nehemiah, I'm actually going to read a couple of passages from Ezra. So if you open to Ezra first, and then we'll, we'll jump into Nehemiah from there. So I'm just going to read a few things from Ezra 1, 1 through 5. And what we see is, is something quite amazing. So that we see Cyrus issues a decree freeing the Jews to return. And so we're going to see three waves take place, kind of a group A, B, and C. The first wave of returnees happens in 538, led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. That's in chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. If you've got time, I encourage you to jot this down. You can maybe study some of this on your own. Some of you may say, I don't really care, but others may, may uh, want to get more of the details and the context. The temple is completed in 516 in Ezra 6, and then Darius is ruler of Persia from 522 to 486. It is completed where Solomon's temple stood until Babylon destroyed it, and then Esther fits in between the first and second wave of the returnees, and she's in the palace in 478. Xerxes is the ruler from 485 to 464. 
Then we see Ezra as the second wave of returnees, some half a century later, around 458. And then the Lord uses him to teach his people his word. So that's what we see in the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah is in the third wave, about 13 years after Ezra arrives in 445. And so if you skip, skip from Ezra to Nehemiah and turn with me to chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, uh, well, we should have the words up on the screen. We have blue Bibles in the back. It's on page 226. Or if you have the app on your phone, feel free to open your phone to it. So we'll be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. We'll work through the first 11 verses. And what we're about to embark on as a church, as a community, is 13 chapters where we are shown how greatly God cares for his city, his people, and his kingdom. During one of the lowest moments in the history of God's people, he raised up an extraordinary servant to accomplish the daunting task of rebuilding the city walls and the people within those walls. We've got to, as we look at the proper context of this, this was no easy task that Nehemiah was going to take on. I think sometimes the way that, that, that God's called people to Portland for different reasons, and it's no easy task of what he has called us to do. I met with a kind of a mentor, a coach of mine recently, and I, I expressed my heart and my burden for the city, and then just some things I've been dealing with personally and emotionally, and he kind of stopped and looked at me and said, does any of this surprise you? And I knew the right answer, and he said, Matt, you're in one of the hardest cities in North America to do what you're trying to do. Why should you be surprised by any of this? And I would say that to all of us. Whatever hardships you might be going through, we, we probably all have them. We could probably stop right now and just spend the rest of our time looking at those. Whatever it may be that you're dealing with, are you surprised? Now, some of you in here, I don't, I don't know everyone, so I don't know what you ascribe to and what you don't. But if you don't believe in this idea of spiritual warfare, I do. I tend to think that it's real and that it's actually happening. It's happening on around us. And so we really shouldn't be surprised. But Nehemiah had this daunting task that was ahead of him. I've already told you that chronologically, Nehemiah comes at the end of the Old Testament, and in it we get the last glimpse of Old Testament history before that curtain come down, comes down, and there's silence for 400 years. Can you imagine 400 years of silence? You're not hearing from God. You're just like, what is going on? So this is the last information we're given before that takes place, only to later be broken. This is the good news of those who we have the whole, the whole Bible, the Old and New Testament, and we study both. Only be broken down by the good news of angels singing about the birth of the Messiah. The Messiah that every other story in this Old Testament is already pointing to and that we get to celebrate. Crazy to believe that we're only a few months from Christmas, so we'll be celebrating this as a community here very, very soon. And we'll see this idea emerge that those who love God, so if you love God, listen up, those who love God and love his kingdom, that you'll study your Bible. So I'm going to go ahead and, and plug these things called tables that was already given at the announcements. Two or three people, three or four people studying scripture together, being accountable to one another, praying together. This is where we're going to see multiplication happen, in my opinion. This is where we're going to see discipleship happen. And so if you're not at a table, get in a table. If you're like, I don't know what a table is, come talk to us. You literally sit at a table, and you get coffee, or if you have money, you can get a meal. And then you talk about scripture that you read and insights that God gave you. And then you share life and what's happening, and you pray for one another. So you get to grow closer to God and closer to one another. And I think we're going to see studying scripture, studying the Bible come out of Nehemiah as well. The second thing that we're going to see emerge is pray. We're going to see Nehemiah pray. You know what? Every Tuesday morning, we have an opportunity to join with other churches, other Christians in our city, and now Wednesday morning as well. This isn't our thing, and Dwarf Hope, while they host it, it's not their thing either. We just get to join other Christians. They just happen to own a building. If we own this, we would host it here, or maybe on Mondays, but we don't own this building. So we get to join with Christians from other cities and just seek God on behalf of our city. So I encourage you. Yes, it is early, as Tyler said, and him and I have gone together before, and I don't make it every week, but if you can, prioritize that if you're able to do that. And then we're going to see this idea emerge of doing everything that we can to advance the gospel, to advance this message of 
that Jesus and his grace that he offers to the world around us, all while summoning others to do the same in the city of Jerusalem, in our case, in the city of Portland. And so as we see what Nehemiah is going to do for Jerusalem, is hopefully we get to do the chance to do that for the, uh, the city of Portland. Look with now verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, the Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had, who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so our introduction, it starts by telling us whose these words are coming from. It's coming from, we already know, Nehemiah. I already told you, Nehemiah means Yahweh has comforted. And so Nehemiah then prepares his audience by giving the location and the time of year. Since it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, his reign, 445 B.C., once again, this is 13 years after Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem. He tells us in Chislev in the ninth month, which will be November, December in the winter. And then Susa, the citadel, or the fortress, was one of the royal seats. And so what we see unfold here is that they're getting caught up like old friends. It's like running into an old friend at, uh, at a market maybe in town and just, oh, I haven't seen you. How was summer? You know, I'm, I'm back for school or I was traveling a lot. Like, how are things going? And everyone knows that what had happened, but Nehemiah inquires specifically about the Jews who had escaped, the ones who had survived the exile. He wants to know what happened to them. How are they doing? And nothing about the response of verse 3 is very surprising news. Because these events had actually taken place 140 years, maybe a little bit longer prior. But what was surprising, or what is surprising as we study this, is the response from Nehemiah, which we're going to see here in a minute in verse 4. We should note that Nehemiah prayed that God would make it possible for him for, to do something about the fate of those who lived in spiritual darkness. My challenge, my encourage to you, if you are one who says, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, that can, let's be real, that can be hard to, to say that in our city. But if you say, you know, I identify that way, then hopefully we all demonstrate concern for the welfare of God's people, for the cause of the kingdom, for God beyond our own neighborhood, but also for our, our greater city. That we're not just doing this just for the sake of ourselves, but we're doing this for those that, that aren't in here tonight. Or say the church is the one organization that exists for its non-members. We exist for those that are around us. We exist for the world that God has called us to, the city that God has called us to be in. So sometimes that means we do uncomfortable things. Sometimes that means we do things that we really don't want to do. But if God's called us to do it, then we need to take that step of action into doing it. Jump into verse 4 with me. He says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, I'm not making judgment calls on any one of you, so please don't, don't think, man, he's thinking about me right now. But if I pulled the room right now, and I'm going to throw myself in there. Let's say someone else comes in. We pulled the room right now. My guess is that we all know the stats and facts about our own city. We know the stats and the facts about the people of Portland. But my guess is that very few of us have wept and mourned over the people. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have or haven't done that. But we see that Nehemiah, when he learns of the news, when he learns of the fate of the people that God is calling him to, when he weeps, he mourns. And then what do we see him do? 
We see Nehemiah display a discipline of fasting and praying. Fasting and praying are two spiritual disciplines that I, I want us to grow in as a church family. I'll be transparent. I just, I just looked at my wife. She always tells me I'm too transparent, but I'm not great at these. I'm not great at fasting. I'm not, I'm not great at, at, at praying. Do I pray? Yes. But how, how often is it intentional on behalf of our city, on behalf of the people God has called me to? But so I want us to help grow and practice these ways of Jesus, these disciplines. We're attempting to do something extremely difficult in a difficult land. But movements throughout history, if you've ever studied movements throughout history, revivals throughout history, they come through the prayers of the people. That's where movement usually takes place. It doesn't take us getting a huge whiteboard and putting all these strategies on the board and, and, and going out and do these different things. It comes through prayer, through men and women getting on their knees and weeping and mourning and saying, God, we need you to rain down in this place. I'm getting at a better place personally. I'm just saying, God, I can't do it. The longer I live here, the more I kind of laugh at myself. I'm just like, God, why did you call me? I can't do it. I'm not the most talented person. I'm not the best pastor in this city. I'm not the most eloquent speaker. I'm not a Bible scholar. The Bible Project would not hire me if I applied. But God has called me here with a purpose, and he's called you here with a purpose. The reason the response from Nehemiah is so shocking, think about this. Who reacts to old news this way? This is news that's over 140 years old. It's like watching the Titanic with my wife, the movie, and her crying, and me being like, hey, I mean, I know it's, it is sad. Don't mishear me. It is sad, but... Man, we all know about that. It happened a long time ago. It's old, and she's just like weeping, you know, just like, okay, are you, are you all right? What is really going on here? Yes, it is old news, news that he likely was aware of. This likely did not shock Nehemiah, likely surprised, did not surprise him. But Nehemiah, this is what I want you to hear, he's hearing the news in a brand new way. For the very first time in his life, this news hits him as something devastating because he is finally hearing the news the way that God heard the news. Nehemiah is getting to a place where he's posturing his heart with God's heart. Whereas God was always burdened by this. But Nehemiah, like others of his day, maybe it just didn't matter to him for a long time. Maybe he didn't, just didn't think about the need and importance of it. And so he's finally hearing this news in a new way. We've all seen and heard about the AIDS epidemic in parts of Africa. I'd be shocked if any of you raised your hand and said, I didn't know about that. I had never heard of anything like that. You've probably watched documentaries on it. You've probably watched news reports on it. But how many of us have done anything about it? How many of us have actually been devastated by those things? So what we see is Nehemiah suddenly becomes burdened to the point of tears, and he knows he must do something. I'm about to go speak next weekend at a missions conference on the East Coast, and, and, and a big part of the missions conference is they would say, yes, what we're doing here is missions, but this kind of looking at unreached people groups, unengaged, unreached people groups. And many of us, if you've been in church for any amount of time, we know that they exist. We know there's people there who have never heard the name of Jesus. We know there's people who have never had opportunity to hear this message that we call the gospel, this good news. Yet most of us just kind of sit passively by and think, oh, Okay. I'm glad that I was privileged to be born in America and we're in a place where I could freely enter into these things. But this whole idea of this global missions and saying we need to get a passion so that we're burdened, so that we do weep on behalf of these people. I don't mean to brag on my wife tonight, although she's great to brag on. I remember coming home one day 
from work. This is when we lived on the East Coast, and she's crying and praying, and I'm, I'm what happened? Did someone pass away? What's going on? And she had learned of some persecution in India, and she was just crying and weeping just on behalf of these, these people there, these Christians, these brothers and sisters of ours. And this is what Nehemiah's experience here. And what I want us to see tonight is that our problems are the same as Nehemiah. We know the news of our city. We have access to social media. Some of you might even be looking at it right now. Go ahead and put it away. We have access to the local papers, the Willamette Weekly. And I think we would all agree that our city, the city we're in right now, we have some serious social problems. There's some serious social fracturing, some issues. I don't, I don't have time to mention all those. I'll just mention a couple. Houselessness. That's a huge issue in our city, one that we should care about. Before you're too quick to stereotype this group into being all drunk men, I think a lot of us have a tendency to do that. I think, oh, they're there for a reason. They deserve that. I'm sure they just want drugs and they just want alcohol. See, people have a tendency to do that. But there are women and children living on the streets of our city. And some of us walk by them every single day. I can't imagine my wife living on the streets. I can't imagine my kids living on the streets. There's an issue going on in our city. What are we going to do about it? This one, although it doesn't maybe seem as serious, and in the moment, it's actually more serious. We have a spiritual problem in our city. We live in a post-Christian, least religious, most atheistic city in the nation. We know this reality. The problem is not information. The problem isn't knowing the stats. The problem isn't Barna Research hasn't come out with enough studies for us. The problem is apathy. Many of us, we simply don't care. So we respond in a couple of ways. And I'm speaking broadly, for the record. <laughs> Sometimes I'm speaking to people who aren't in the room. Sometimes it's you in the room. I let the Holy Spirit decide if you're in the room. So just for the record. Um, we are really good at debating the problems and throwing criticism. It's always someone else's fault. Ideally, someone on the other side of the debate. The sad reality is we tend to debate these issues like these aren't real people that we're talking about or that there's lives that don't matter. I'm on the neighborhood board here, and so sometimes I'm in these meetings, and we'll talk about them, we'll de debate about them, and then we say, hey, next, win next month, first Wednesday of the month, we'll be back here, right? Same board boardroom. And sometimes we do take action, but sometimes I'm like, we talked about it like three months ago. I don't, I don't know we ever actually did anything. The second way is the lifestyle of Portland. Some of us, we moved here to consume the city where we are. We moved here to consume the outdoors. Let's be real. We live in an amazing city. We live in an amazing part of the country. If you had to see some of the areas, some of the villages where I had to minister in South Asia, I love the people there. Man, it, it, it was hard. Like our idea of camping for fun, like they would never want to do that. That's their daily lives. So we live in a great city, an amazing city to live, great food, great coffee. There's no wonder millennials and Gen Z are flocking to do life here. It's probably one of the, the areas attracting the, that segment of the population. So when the reality of our city and its issues reveal themselves, many people position themselves as they didn't move here for this, so they just don't care. It's like, whoa, I didn't, hey, I see the city's got some of those things, but I moved here to go hiking. I moved here to go snowboarding. I'm an avid skier. Oh, there's the houselessness and stuff I see around the sea. Like, that's not why I moved here. That's just one of those areas I kind of ignore and live on the fringes of society. And then we see a guy like Nehemiah. He enters the scene. He comes to show us a third way. He shows us that God wants more than information in our lives. He wants transformation in our lives. 
Let me say that again, because I think a lot of us have information. A lot of us have the head knowledge. When people tell me, well, I'm just going to read more books on this, or I've been to so many seminars, or I've got all these letters next to my name, I'm like, I really don't care about that, honestly. I've got two masters myself. It's like, woo, great. <laughs> How are you practically living this out? How are you practically living out the knowledge that you have up here? So God wants more than information in our lives. He wants transformation in our lives. Having knowledge about an issue doesn't mean your heart is lined up with God on that issue. We see for the first time that Nehemiah's heart is lined up with God's heart. Now let me clarify before I'm misunderstood. I'm not here to give you action steps to go and do. You're probably thinking, all right, I'm just waiting for it. He's just going to give us a list of all these things we've got to go and do now. That's not why I'm here. It's not my job. But rather, your first step is about what you should become. My prayers through this series is that you will start doing a couple of things. That you'll start seeing our city how God sees it. Maybe you're already there. Maybe you're not. But that all of us, regardless where we're starting tonight, that we'll have a growing, deeper burden for the city where God has called us. The second thing is allow God to develop a burden in your heart for the place that he has called you. That he stirs something inside of you. It's easy for us to get caught up in our own lives. It's easy for us to get busy with our own things and to just pass by the issues and just read the articles. And I can't tell you how many times I get text messages from people, from friends and family around the country about things happening in our city. And it's easy just to like, yeah, I know, it's, it's just Portland right off. But I think God wants us to actually take action. I think God actually wants us to do something. I think he wants our heart to line up with his heart for this city. If we love God in the advance of his glory, we will feel d- deep sorrow when the advance of his, for the advance of his glory. We will feel the deep sorrow when the advance of the gospel is halted, and we will be disciplined and diligent to fast and pray, which is what we see Nehemiah do. James and Hamilton Jr. said, if we would feel the kind of zeal for the church that results in weeping, mourning, fasting, and praying in response to reports about how the enemies of the gospel have attacked God's kingdom, we should seek to understand the scripture and pray that God would cause us to long for their fulfillment. And now what we're going to see proceeds is verses 5 through 11. It's one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible, so pick back up in verse 5 with me. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. So what we see Nehemiah start out doing in this prayer is he calls on God to do what God had promised to do. So the fact that God keeps the covenant means that Nehemiah is asking God to do what he had committed to doing long ago. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, God keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah is living out the fulfillment of what God promised when he said he would, he would scatter Israel, exiling them among the nations. And his prayer is that he would experience what will come after the exile of these people. Nehemiah's prayer begins with a confession He recalls all the past sins of Israel, but he doesn't stop there. It's easy for us to point out the sins of other people. It'd be easy for me to point out the sins of Portland, but then Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He says, he points out himself and his family, his own sins. And so some of us think, you know what? We recognize there's issues, there's sins in our city. Man, I've got sins in my own life. My family has sin in my own heart. And such a confession is generally right at the beginning in prayer, but Nehemiah especially acknowledged that Israel's sin has led to the present deplorable situation in Jerusalem. He's saying this is what has gotten us in this, sta- this status because of the sin, because of the rebellion against you, God. Israel has not responded to God's gracious covenant in the new way outlined in verse 5. Nehemiah's prayer also recalls Solomon's when he dedicated the first temple from 1 Kings chapter 8. 
Here's the point I want you to take away from the first two verses of his prayer. Before you can be part of the solution, you must recognize you are part of the problem. Somebody say that. Before we can collectively be part of the solution, we must recognize that we are collectively part of the problem. His prayer continues in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And so Nehemiah, what he's doing is he's asking God to remember. He says, God, remember your word where you made promises to Israel. God, remember your faithfulness to your people. Saying, God, redeem and restore your city. Not because we are good or deserve it. He recognized that. We're not good and we don't deserve it. But because you are good and based on your goodness. God, restore your city and your people based on who you are. Not on who we are. And so we see Nehemiah is in exile in Persia. But although he is kind of of the world, he's not of, and although he's in the world, he's not of the world. He doesn't mourn like those who have no hope. So yes, we see him mourn, but he's not mourning and complaining. He's not like, oh, I, I have no hope at all. He's mourning because he has hope. He mourns because the enemies of God's kingdom have prevailed, and he mourns because he loves God's kingdom more than he loves his life. And he doesn't stop with prayer. We see Nehemiah's move to action in verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So mercy in the sight of this man, who's he, who's he referring to there? He's referring back to Artaxerxes, which is really Nehemiah's boss. And so we know Nehemiah knows that God can move powerful people to act in ways in accord with his own plans. We see that in other parts of Scripture. But he also knows that Artaxerxes has already decreed that work on rebuilding Jerusalem should stop. Prior to this, it should stop. We're not going to do it anymore. And therefore, Nehemiah's petition, it brings, potentially brings him danger to himself because he's going to petition the king and say, hey, I want, to, I want to go do this. I want to go rebuild what you said to stop rebuilding. And, and Nehemiah is in the position of a cupbearer. And a cupbearer may not sound like to us, very much to us, but if you're a cupbearer to the king, that was a pretty high office and involved regular access to the king. This means the king likely trusted Nehemiah. And during this, Nehemiah, he knows his Bible, he's studying his Bible, he's praying, and he makes time for it. And it should be noted, as we, as we read it, it seems like it just really quickly jumps in. Nehemiah prayed for four to five months as he went about his daily work. So really, it was his first step of action. It was weeping, and then he starts more, he's weeping, and then he's fasting, and he's praying. Why he's continuing his work? So sometimes you might think, man, it'd be easier if I could just stop and just do this full time. But God hasn't called you to do that. God's called you to continue to study. So college students, go to class tomorrow, but you can, you can be praying as you're going from class to class or while you're in class and thinking about the needs of our city or maybe some of the needs of the students around you. J.C. Ryle says, I ask whether you pray because of a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All the children of God on earth are like this in respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life in an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. This is one of the common marks of all the children of God. Here's what Nehemiah is saying. Grant me success as I get ready to go and talk 
with this man who happens to be my boss and the king. And so he's, he's probably nervous. He knows the position of his boss. Have you ever been there? You've got to go talk to your boss, ask him for time off. So he's going to his boss. He's going to ask for some extended time away from Persia. It's not for vacation. His boss isn't going to understand that. You have an understanding boss? Like his boss thinks, man, you're taking time off. You must be relaxing. Like, no, it's not for vacation. But that doesn't matter to the boss. And what's he asking for? He's asking for time. Time to start rebuilding the city, the wall, and the people. And so we see Nehemiah's burden. So he got this burden of this old news, and his burden then grew into a calling. His heartbeat is now in sync with God's heartbeat. And his calling, it stirred him beyond just the calling. It stirred him to action. I'm a transplant to this city. You already know that. Many of you are also transplants to this city. In our city, one of the first things I noticed when I started visiting here about, I don't know, four years ago is how socially aware it is. And, you know, you even see signs in people's yards reminding us of how socially aware we are, just in case we forgot that. And we have protests in our cities on a regular basis. And there's just always people, like, let, like reminding us, like, hey, in case you forgot, we need to be socially aware. But the longer I live here, the more I've observed something. Rarely does awareness lead to sacrificial action. It's easy to put a sign in your yard. Anyone can do that. It'd be easy for me to put a cross in my yard and say, I'm planting a church. How are you doing that? Man, I just took this huge old cross in my front yard. I'm just hoping as people drive by, maybe I'll put some sins on there and nail them on. They'll see the nails and maybe they'll just stop and get on their knees and pray and repent. It'd be really easy for me to do that. I'm not judging if you have that sign in your yard. I'm just saying it's really easy to do that part. It's easy to complain about an issue rather than actually take action about something. I, I encourage you just to stop and listen to the conversations happening in the coffee shops around you sometime. Now, I know that's weird, and you're actually listening to conversations that aren't yours, but if they're right next to you, I feel like it's fair game. So sometimes I'm just like, okay, I'm hearing these conversations that are happening on around me. And what I've learned is there's no lack of social awareness on the issues of pain and brokenness in our city. But rarely have I seen it lead to actual action. It's so easy to sit around and talk about how other people aren't doing it right when you aren't doing anything yourself. Let me say that one again in case you weren't listening. It's so easy to sit around and talk about how other people aren't doing it right when you aren't actually doing anything about it yourself. Sojourn, let's be the minority. Let's be the group who's known for taking action. Let's people look at us in Northeast Portland and say, man, those people talk about it. Like, I have, I have a dream of some vision of us, like, hosting forums. Even though this isn't our building, we'll pay for it. Like, hosting forums about different social issues. But my concern there is that we'll do the same thing. We'll just host it, and we'll learn about the houselessness issue or, or whatever it may be. And then we'll, we'll go to our houses and close our door and eat our potlucks and then come back and do it all again. And I, I want us to actually be people of action, you know, which is why we do partner with different groups in the city. But let us be the minority the people that receive a calling. The people that turn this city upside down for the glory of God. Why? Because we exist for the city. Because we care for the city where God has placed us. So as we wrap up this evening, I have one simple question for you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Nehemiah's first step was asking his boss for some time off. Let's be honest, that sounds pretty mundane to me. That doesn't sound like a big action step, a big step of faith. He put in the request. He went and met with his boss. Said, hey, can I, take, you know, can I take some time off work? Most of you probably do that digitally online today. 
But oftentimes, the first step towards faithfulness is nothing glamorous. I think sometimes we read scripture and we hear about these key figures and we think, man, it's got to be big and it's got to be splashy and everyone's got to know about it. We've got to make sure, like, once we take that action, I'm going to put it on Instagram. It's going to be a story and it's going to be a post and it's going to be on Twitter and I'm going to do all these things. Like, no, like, it can just be in the mundane, normal life that no one has to even know about. So what is your first step for the glory of God in and through us, this church, in our city? Only you can answer that question as the Holy Spirit reveals next steps to you. But for some of you, it might sound like this. For some of you, it might be making a commitment to Jesus tonight by giving your life to him for the very first time. For some of you, it might be turning away from a sin that nobody knows is even in your life. For some of you, it might be changing your schedule so that you have more time available to give away to others. For some of you, it might be being generous with your resources, maybe for the very first time. For some of you, maybe it's having a conversation with a neighbor or having a neighbor over for dinner for the very first time. Just say, you know what, I've been meaning to get to know that person. Or maybe it's someone in your dorm. I know the students just started back, but maybe it's someone on your hall. Like, hey, I want to I go get coffee with you. And so, Sojourn, as we finish up, we're going to have a few ways that we respond to Jesus. The first way of response is worship. Now, we worship, I, really, the, the whole service tonight, all of that's worship. So I know we always think of the singing, and that is a very important part of it. But we worship how we get our coffee and how we drink our coffee and how we interact with others. And we worship when we set up these chairs, for those of you who did that, and we set up this projector for the first time when we decided to flip the room tonight. But we're going to worship through songs. We're going to sing songs of praise to Jesus. Pay attention to those words. We take seriously the songs that we put up here, the songs that, that Mandy put in work and practice this week to sing, to lead us and sing together. That's the first way. The second way is giving. We can give of our time. Some of us showed up early and, and made coffee and once again set out chairs. That's one way that we give and we give back. Some of us give through our talent, putting together slideshows. Maybe you need to give a prayer. Maybe it's a prayer of confession. Maybe it's a, a prayer of repentance. We have cards back there. We have a box. You can fill it out if you want someone to pray for you. I'll pray for you this week. Or maybe you just say, you know what? I wanted to share this with Sojourn. I've been praying this over this church. And then we also can give financially. If you consider Sojourn your home, if you consider Sojourn your church, then we have the box there for prayer, yes. But it's also a way that we can, we can give back. And so we want to give our first fruits for the city, for the greater cause of what God has called us to. Now, we also have that available online, so I get it. I do that online, but the box is there if you're a cash or a check person. And then the last way is the Lord's Supper. This is the final way that we worship. And we consider the Lord's Supper, the table back there. We consider this a family meal. And so we believe that anyone who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted him alone for salvation is invited to come and participate in this meal. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 30, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person ex 
examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so maybe you need to take a few moments tonight before you would, uh, the act of getting out of your chair and participating in the table. Ask God to inspect your life, inspect your heart. Maybe there's some, some areas of stuff going on. Maybe you just need to talk to God. Maybe you just need a moment. Now with our setup a little different, it's a little more conducive, um, I'll be in the back, as always, if you want someone to talk to, someone to pray with you, if you've got any questions. I don't even know what, what, what is this bread, what is this wine, what does that mean? I'm available. We'd love to walk through that with you. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll respond accordingly, and then Mandy will come back up and finish us out through worship and song. So let me pray for us. God, we want to come to you. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah. God, the confession of my heart this week has been, I don't always respond the way that I've seen here through a burden, through mourning. God, I pray tonight that you move throughout this room. And God, that you would burden our hearts for this city, for these people. Yes, ultimately for their spiritual need, but God, also for the physical needs we see around us. God, for the houselessness population. God, and many other areas of brokenness. God, that you would give us a burden for those and that we would be people of action, not just people of words. God, that we would posture ourselves as people that proclaim the gospel in word and deed. God, that we would go to the people just as we see you model in scripture and go into the people. God, I pray that you would burden us to action, that you would call us to action. God, we know the facts. We know the, the stats of our city. We know many people consider it lost beyond any hope. Our city is the one that sticks out in this corner of the country, God, that many of us, many people look at us and they mock or they scorn or they want nothing to do with us. God, but you have called us all here for a reason. And God, we believe that there is hope for this city that you have called us to. God, I confess and want to repent at times when I've been critical of the city where you've called me. God, there's been times I want to be like Jonah and I want to leave this city. I want to flee away from it. But God, I believe you've called me here for a reason. I believe that you've called these people in this room here for a reason. And God, may our hearts align with your heart. God, may we see the people of the city the way that you see them. Give us a love for these people. Only a love that can come from you. God, we give this time over to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So sojourn, the table is open there in the back. Prayer is available. The time is yours. Respond accordingly.